scripture this morning is from James 4, verses 11 and 12. That is page 952 in the Bible in the back of the pew. So James 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Susie, is it not loud? Is there reverb out there, or is that just me up here in the pulpit here? All right, good morning. Um, It's good to be here this morning with you. Um, I saw it back there in the back. uh, Kelly and Jared uh, Benes here for the first time as a married couple, so that that was a pretty exciting uh, wedding to be at, and so, gosh, you said there have been weddings, uh, funerals. Uh, I'm personally coming off of uh, nine weeks out of the pulpit. Um, I lost my dad to cancer a couple of weeks uh, back. And so this has been a season for me that's been a, a roller coaster ride. Lots of grieving, um, lots of sorrow, um, but so thankful to get to spend some time away with extended family and just to be able to, uh, yeah, have that time to kind of make some transitions here, um, not only did we walk through that season of grieving, we moved our family uh, from over <laughs> in the Heritage Hill area right next door here. So lots of big transitions in our lives. And so, so thankful for uh, the group of guys that preached this summer, I think nine weeks now or something. And so I wanted to give a shout out to a couple of guys who were a part of that group there. Um, Jackson um, Brown um, for Steve and Poulin. Uh, Ken Weiss, uh, Sebastian Ramos, and uh, Josh Warren, of course, have been preaching for us. Just want to honor these guys who have stepped in during this season, preached God's word. I hope it has been really a good season for you guys to hear some other voices, particularly some young guys uh, coming up in the word, uh, preaching. Uh, But very thankful for that time, very thankful for this uh, season, and uh, yeah, and to be back here together with you digging into the book of James. I mean, this is really exciting. I can't think of a more practical, more accessible book for our summer. If you wanted to put this on your Bible summer reading list, this is about as practical as it gets. Um, James just doesn't hold back. He just pulls no punches. Uh, He's bringing the heat week in and week out very practically around what it looks like to wholeheartedly follow Jesus, to be all in. And I feel like coming out of a season of uh, COVID where we're all kind of on online church and just kind of in this weird twilight zone, we're like, as a church, how great would it be to just feel like we're just going to do a series on what it looks like to wholeheartedly follow Jesus, to be all in as we enter back into the normal rhythms of life together uh, as a church. And so I hope you've been enjoying this series as much as uh, I have. Um, I am really excited to jump in. And so My topic, uh, my assigned text for this week are just two verses, verse 11 uh, and 12. And here, James is returning to one of his favorite topics, and that is the use of the tongue and how we can use the tongue to build people up or tear people down. We can use the tongue to destroy the body, or we can use the tongue to encourage, edify, and instruct 
uh, and express the love of God to um, each other. And so uh, I'm excited to dive into that, um, mostly because uh, I'm a recovering judgmental person. Like, you know, you've heard of, like, recovering alcoholics. You've heard of recovering, like, you know, when I think of this text, I think about judgmentalism. I look at my former, less mature self, and I cringe a lot. Uh, I think of myself as a young seminary student, co particularly college student, um, running around, like, judging everyone. I mean, I was, like, you know, professors, pastors, you know, I was that guy who was sitting there in the row at class, like, rewriting the, past, the professor's lecture, being like, if I were standing up front, here's what I would have said. I was the kid, you know, the seminary student with his Greek New Testament, like, trying to grade the, you know, the, the pastor on his sermon and all. And I look back at those days and I cringe because I was so immature, so insecure. You know, I wanted to prove that I was smart, that I had the skills, that I had the abilities, that I had what it took to be uh, hanging in those circles. And uh, I look back at that now and I go, gosh, man, I don't know how many people I hurt because of my uh, insensitivity and just lack of self-awareness during that season. Fortunately, by the grace of God, one of our small groups when I was in seminary did a little mini intervention on Mike. They were like, Mike, you're clearly passionate about theology and the Bible, and yet you're just not really listening to other people. You're not sensitive. You're not caring. And, and that moment, that wonderful little intervention in my life, uh, produced a wonderful harvest of, uh, of, of fruitfulness in my life. But I don't know what it is for you where judgmentalism comes in. Um, you probably think that's really silly, some seminary guy judging professors and pastors. Who has the right to do that kind of stuff? Uh, but it may be for you something a little bit less, uh, you know, high-flown and intellectual. I asked my wife what it might be for her, and she said, you know, I kind of judge people more on their emotional intelligence, you know? Are they like, you know, are they cold? Are they distant? Are, or are they warm? And are they welcoming? You know, those are the kind of things she looked for. Are they too over-emotional, like just crazy uh, careening from one emotion to the next. Uh, maybe for you, it's less about emotions or uh, the intellect and more about actions. You're like, gosh, I don't care what you think or what you feel. What are you doing? What steps are you taking to address the big issues in our world? Or maybe it's more of a relational thing. For you, you're like, man, I judge people on relationships, how good of a friend they are, right? How good of a parent or how good of a spouse. Like, there are so many different ways that we find ourselves judging each other. And as a pastor, James is deeply concerned about how judgmentalism and destructive speech could tear apart the church. Uh, he's worried about that in the first century, and I would suggest that that danger is just as real here uh, today. And so this morning, I want to look at James' warning about weaponizing words. Don't worry about James' warning about weaponizing words, James' devastating diagnosis of why we do this. And finally, James' reminder of the only verdict that really matters. And so uh, my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would examine our own hearts, how quick we are to judge, and find freedom for ourselves and others in the fact that because God is judge, we don't have to be. And so let's pray as we dive into God's word uh, this morning that he'd speak to us, that he'd minister to us around all the ways that we judge, all the ways we are tempted uh, to look down on others, all the ways we use our speech to tear down. And so, Father... Our hearts are so prone to judge, uh, even if we don't verbalize those judgments or publish them on social media. You know how quickly our hearts are drawn to judge those uh, around us for any number of things. And so we pray uh, this morning as we dive into your word, God, that you would free us from all the ways that we would be tempted 
to measure ourselves against others, all the ways we attempted to live uh, in fear of the verdict of others or the condemnation of others, and that we could find the freedom that comes only from seeing you as our ultimate judge. Would you come this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you speak through your word to your people? And would you get all the glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start here uh, with James' warning about weaponizing words. Notice what he says here in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not speak evil against one another. And the first thing that James is addressing here is he's addressing his remarks to the church, to this local body of believers. It'd be really easy for us to go, man, did you see all that stuff out on social media? Did you see what this person, that person was doing? We can look out there at the world and look at cancel culture and we can look at boycotts and we can look at all that and go, yeah, isn't it terrible what the world is doing out there, that communication? And James is like, whoa, 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 guys, wait a minute. Just look around, look to your right, look to your left. Um, how are we as the church using our words to build one another up? This is one of uh, the many one another passages in the New Testament, if you're familiar with some of those, um, uh, the authors of the New Testament tell us to love one another, to welcome one another, to serve one another, to honor one another. All these beautiful texts about what this new community should look like as we live our lives together. And James is saying, don't speak evil against one another. This is one of the most dangerous, toxic things. If you want to destroy beautiful biblical community, yeah, just speak evil against one another. Just use your words to tear other people down. James is concerned that this beautiful family that Jesus started and is now scattered around the Greco-Roman world would tear itself apart by evil speech and judgmentalism, that they would become essentially a dysfunctional family. And so we've got to grapple with that. This is a message not for those people out there. This is a message for the church because of how are we thinking about and using our language with each other with the people that God has called us to do life with, the bro our brothers and sisters in Christ, this beautiful family that God has called us to. So James gives very clear warning, right? This is James. He's not pulling any punches. He just says, look, stop doing this. This is a cease and desist order. Stop speaking evil. And uh, this term, speaking evil, can refer to slander, gossip, false witness, insubordination, and the list goes on and on and on of toxic, destructive speech that we might use to tear each other apart. James um, would have in mind, of course, in his culture, as we've seen throughout this series, uh, a lot of different ways that in that first century culture, people were judging each other based on their ethnicity, uh, based on their background. Were they Jews? Were they Gentiles? Circumcision? Not circumcision? Were they rich? Were they poor? Uh, all of these different factors that in first century life were so significant, so important, and so central, right? He would have had in mind all the arguments that were happening between uh, the circumcision party, the uncircumcision party, looking at people that were slaves, that were free, and how those arguments in the first century could degenerate into personal attacks, questioning people's motives or characters, spreading salacious rumors, jealousy, rivalry, party spirit, all these things that were happening. And if you read the book of Acts, we see some of those things playing out in the life of the church. And so James is deeply concern. It's not hard to see, right, secular versions of this playing out in our culture, the ways our culture has weaponized words, right, to tear people down, to deplatform people, to do uh, whatever it is. But James wants us to consider some of the ways we do that personally. So I want you to be thinking of what are some of the ways maybe in your life 
you've seen people tear each other down with words. What is the kind of division, dissension? We've seen church splits, just ugly things that have happened in the life of the church. Uh, in case you haven't been around for a while, the church can be a pretty cutthroat place too, right? <laughs> people in the church can use their words to wound, and uh, we've probably all been there at one point or another. The second thing James uh, says here in verse 11 is James adds judging as another way this church family could tear itself apart. So he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. James is adding another dimension to this. So he's speaking evil, we could add slander, we could add gossip, we could add all these ways we just kind of rip each other apart. Uh, but James is talking about judging here in the negative sense of condemnation. And again, the Bible Project has a great visual uh, for this here, a nice little slide here. You know, here's brother taking the communion here, the Lord's Supper, experiencing the grace of God. And you got two folks, you know, three cats in the back, you know, talking trash, right? That's, that's how it happens in the life of the local and church. And James is warning his readers about the danger of contending, condemning people. And of course, in this context, it's probably along those ethnic, cultural, racial, socioeconomic lines. But we have all kinds of lines in our own culture today, don't we? About which we condemn each other, about the way, what the food you eat, or the car you drive, or the clothes you wear, uh, all the different ways that we can be social conscious or not social conscious or virtue signaling different things. There are so many ways in which we as a church can start to judge each other. Now, this doesn't mean there isn't a place for right judgment, discernment, or discipline in the church, right? James goes on to conclude this letter by encouraging his readers to help bring people wandering in the truth back into the fold. That's where the letter is going. So he's not saying don't ever judge people. He's saying you should exercise discernment. If you see somebody wandering away, you should bring them back, right? Both Jesus and Paul give clear instructions for right judgment in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. But here in James 4, 11 through 12, James is focused on judgment as condemnation, the way we would just condemn our brothers and sisters for what we see in their lives, just write them off, totally uh, disparage them or abandon them or relegate them to um, just uh, excluding them from our life and fellowship. James insists that the church must be a place of safety and welcome, not condemnation. So we need to pause here and take stock of our own speech, right? Are we weaponizing our words? Are we tearing people down with the things that we say? Are we judging or condemning people around us for the fault lines in our own culture or some of the taboos in our own Christian subculture, perhaps? Uh, are we welcome, or are we a place that's welcoming to people that are different from us, that people can come in here and experience the love and grace and generous welcome of God? Or do you take stock of that in your own life? What, what are you experiencing? What are you seeing around you in terms of your speech? Take stock of maybe some of the language that you've been sharing, and, and maybe, and I, I give this word too to introverts, maybe not things you've been saying, but, but in your heart of hearts, thinking when you look at these wonderful, beautiful group of people God has brought together, uh, what are the thoughts also going on in your heart? So James has warned us about the danger of weaponizing words. Uh, why are we so prone to do this? I, I want to look uh, closely here at James' devastating diagnosis. James is going to drill down into why is it that we use our words to hurt others? Why is it we're so prone to judge others? Why is it we're so prone to look down 
on others. And the first thing James wants us to see is that judgmentalism and evil speech is speaking evil against the law. Notice that in verse 11. Again, if you're following right along here, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. That's interesting, right? How is evil speech against the law? Now, if you're familiar uh, with the law, you've read it, right? The law does, of course, have to say a lot about slander, uh, false witness, and a host of other destructive uh, behaviors and speeches. But the commentators think that James is going to get something even more fundamental here in verses 11 through 12. James is riffing off Jesus' summary of the law in Leviticus 19.18. Right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He did this back in chapter 2. He talked about this royal law, this law of love that we're all called to live and follow. And James wants to see that when we speak evil against our brothers and sisters, we're violating one of the most basic principles of the law. James warns us this weaponizing of words is a fundamental contradiction of the law of love. And this speaking against the law is speaking against the lawgiver, right? Contradicting the law of love is contradicting the God who is love. And so when we use our speech, right, to injure and hurt others, when we use our speech to judge others, whether verbally or in our hearts, right, we are contradicting God's love. We're also contradicting the lawgiver himself. And that's where James' diagnosis gets a little bit deeper and a little more painful because James goes on to say here in verse 11, not only... Are we speaking evil against the law, but we're judging the law? You see, James' diagnosis is not only are people speaking evil, um, they're, they're judging the law. How, how do we judge the law? Uh, we decide which parts we want to keep. We ignore the law's um, instructions on speech or the more fundamental call to love our neighbor as ourselves. And really, we're setting ourselves up as the judge and lawgiver, right? That, that's where James is going with this. When you set yourself up, right, to judge your brothers and sisters, the people around you, you are pushing God off of his throne, and you're putting yourself on your throne, saying, I'm the one who should be exercising judgment here. I'm the one who should be able to decide which laws we follow. And so James is saying, underneath all of this evil speech, underneath the insecurity, underneath all of the ways that we can run our mouths is this deep-seated desire, right, uh, to be the judge, to be the lawgiver, to put ourselves up on the throne. And uh, this is a dangerous place to be, right? We're making ourselves judge, jury, and executioner. We're playing God, and that is a very dangerous uh, place to be. James warns us at the end of verse 11 that we place ourselves in the role of judging other people. We tend to get distracted from living out the law ourselves. Notice what he says here at the end of verse 11. The one who speaks against the law speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge, right? Fallible and finite human beings struggle enough with actually living out the law of love, much less sitting in judgment of other people. You see, when we get our eyes off of following Jesus and actually living out the law of love and start just judging others, right, we get distracted from the calling that God has for our lives the mission of mercy and love and care uh, that we have. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. Um, he says, judging others makes us blind. Whereas love is illuminating, by judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. I, I love that quote, right? Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating by 
judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Isn't that true? Right? When we start judging others, we get blinded, right, to our own evil in our own lives, to character flaws in our own lives. We, we get this power trip from, from judging others and from being able to express that. We forget the grace we need and the grace that needs to go towards others. And so uh, why do we judge, right? Why do we condemn? Why does gossip feel so good? Why does caring other people make us feel better? I've got a great little graphic up there uh, of what's going on in our hearts here. So I want to give you a visual of what's happening here when we're judging others, right? We are building ourselves up, right? Judgment or condemnation feels good, right? Because tearing others down feels like we're building ourselves up feels like we are now moving up in the world, right? Our insecurities inside of us, right? As we start ripping other people, it's like, man, I'm building myself up. That other person is, or at least I'm belittling this other person. So now I can feel better about myself, right? It scratches that itch of our own insecurity, our own desire to feel like we matter, that we're worth something. And so we think maybe, maybe by kind of tearing other people down, we can build ourselves up. Just like alcohol or drugs gives us a buzz or a high that we crave, gossip or judgmentalism uh, gives us that buzz. It gives us that same kind of a high, but we always come down. We always crash. There's always a hangover to follow, right? That instant feeling of feeling good about tearing others down always comes around, swings around, boomerangs on us, right? Because we are talking badly about other people, right? We know, right? Other people are going to be talking badly about us. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that when we condemn others, we're ultimately only condemning ourselves. All that judgment that we are pointing at others, there's always those four fingers, right, that are pointing back at ourselves. And so we have to face the condemnation that we have dished out on others. And this is why James concludes with a very searching question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Right? If we look closely enough into our own hearts, we would realize that we don't have any grounds on which to judge other people. You know, we have enough of our own issues to be worrying about or condemning other people. Right? We, we have plenty. If we would look closely enough, we would spend that time searching our own hearts, discerning our own issues, our own character flaws. Right? We wouldn't have time to be running around trying to find the flaws in all the people around us. I want to suggest that the weaponizing of words and judgmentalism comes not only from a place of insecurity, but also from a place of shocking lack of self-awareness, right? To play God as lawgiver and judge, we need to ignore some inconvenient and unpleasant truths about ourselves, right? We forget our finitude, our fallibility, our biases, our prejudices, and our limited perspective, right? And to play God, we have to ignore all those things because it would be pretty foolish for us to put ourselves up on God's throne and judge others if we didn't have these delusions of grandeur about ourselves. Uh, James just kind of knocks us down off of that pedestal, off of that throne, and, and levels out who we are before God and before others. And he does that in verse uh, 12, which is where we're going to close here. So how do we get a true sense of self-awareness and security? We have to look at James' warning. We've looked already at James's warning and weaponizing of words and his devastating diagnosis, and finally, and most importantly, I want to look at James' reminder of the only verdict or judgment that really matters. This is so crucial that we understand James' logic here, what he's trying to say, how he's trying to minister to us as pastor to his people. 
uh, he says these words, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. And he's essentially saying, look guys, there's only one lawgiver and judge and it's not you, okay? <laughs> not me and, and it's not anybody else. There's one lawgiver and judge. He is the one and his verdict, his judgment is the only verdict that ultimately matters. And so there is only one person, and we, and we recognize this, right? It's really good that God is the judge because he's the only one, right, that has the ultimate perspective. He's the only one that has the whole picture. He's the only one that understands all of our circumstances. He's the only one that knows us down to the motivations of our hearts, right? He's the one that understands everything. He has a view of the past, the present, the future. He is able to provide ultimate judgment. That's what makes God God, right? And that's what makes us terrible judges. We don't have that God's eye view. We don't have that vantage point. But the wonder of it all is that the judge didn't stay on his heavenly throne, but came down into the messiness of life in a fallen world. He knows what it is to experience the weaponizing of words. Uh, look at Jesus' life. You see, Jesus experienced this in so many ways. He was the subject of gossip about his mysterious birth. People wondered, you know, who, who's this kid's father, right? He was judged for growing up in the backwater town of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Just, just think of the way words were turned against Jesus himself. He was slandered by the religious, religious establishment, constantly trying to trick him, constantly trying to trap him uh, for what they perceived to be violations of the law of God. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples. He experienced false testimony. He was, he was mocked and reviled. And even when he was hanging on the cross, uh, but Jesus responded, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is our Savior, right? John tells us in John 3, 17 through 18, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only name of the only son of God. In our place, condemned, Jesus stood so that we could stand in God's presence with no condemnation. This is, friends, the beauty of the gospel. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you need a memory verse for this week, if you need a place to constantly fix your mind this week, if you struggle with self-condemnation, if you struggle with insecurity, to remember that before God, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have you experienced the liberation these words, these words herald for yourself? Have these truths come home to you in your own life, right? The good news that there is only one judge and lawgiver, or does that sound like really bad news to you? Because you look at over the course of your life and you go, man, I'm in trouble if there's a one judge and lawgiver. Right, for Christians who have thrown themselves upon the mercy of Jesus uh, on his amazing grace, right? We can look at the lawgiver and judge who has stepped down out of the bench, taken our punishment in our place so that we could experience his lavish grace, this verdict about of no condemnation. You see, when that comes home to our hearts and that comes home to our lives, right? When we see, man, Jesus took my condemnation on the cross, right? 
There can be no way in which we have no business condemning our brothers and sisters once the reality that there's no condemnation because of what Jesus has done uh, that creates a community where condemnation cannot be accepted. It cannot be allowed. It cannot be given a place to grow. Instead, it creates this beautiful, welcoming community of Jesus followers who are able to share the same grace that we have received together. This verdict that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We live in that grace and we offer that grace to other sinners who desperately need to hear it. We turn away from our inner cynic, our inner critic, our compulsion to judge, our insecurities, and we live in the freedom of the children of God into a new self-awareness that, that we are God's children. This new awareness should be the truest thing about us. I love how Tim Keller explains the gospel and how it shapes both this self-awareness and it also deals with the security we need, right? If those are the two dangers, right, in our lives, right, we, we have this insecurity that makes us constantly judging, condemning others, and then we also have this really jacked up self-awareness that, like, or a lack of self-awareness that, that would put ourselves and elevate us to God's position. Listen to what Keller says. He says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. This merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. I, I love that. I love the balance of that statement. Right? The gospel allows us to face our deepest flaws, our deepest fears, uh, the deepest struggles, the things that you've thought about in your heart over the course of this week or maybe even this morning, the places where our minds and our hearts go. Uh, but because of the love that God has extended to us in Christ, we can face our deepest flaws because of this incredible commitment and love we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So what would it look like to live out of this new self-awareness, a new security that we get in this verdict that we have received from the judge. How would that transform the way we live our lives together, transform the community that we find ourselves in? Uh, well, first off, it would require us to silence our inner critic, right? Both of ourselves and our brothers and sisters. We're going to have to mute that voice of self-condemnation and condemnation of others. Right? This is hard. This is difficult for some of us, right, who are judgmental by nature. We're, we're, we're going to have to make an intentional effort this week to silence that inner critic, to just to shut that down every time and recognize that behind that is Satan, the accuser of the brothers, right? That behind that criticism, behind that um, judgmentalism, right? There's something demonic, right, going on in our lives. We're going to have to mute that voice in our lives, and that's going to require a lot of effort. It's going to require us to develop a sanctified self-awareness, second sanctified self-awareness, right? You might need to recite Romans 8, 1 to yourself 
every day when you wake up and every day when you go to bed, if you're a person that is naturally self-condemning, right? You just look at the sin in your life, the struggles, the weakness, and you just beat yourself up over and over and over again. You, you may need to just camp out there, right? Maybe you need to chew on Tim Keller's definition of the gospel this week. Um, post it somewhere, post it under your refrigerator, put it on your computer monitor at work, and just reflect on the freedom that we have in Christ, God's commitment to it, that we are deeply known and deeply loved because of the gospel. And finally, a last suggestion for how this might come home, it's going to require that we refrain from questioning people's motivations, or worse, assigning motivation without actually talking to people. Have you ever done this? I do this. Guilty, right? I'm like, I can't believe that person did that. They must totally hate me, or they must be totally trying to drive me nuts. Or they, like, if they knew what I was thinking, they would never do this. And uh, has that ever happened to anybody else? Uh, I'm the only one. Like, it's just like, oh, no. I just assigned motivation to people, and I didn't even check with them. I didn't ask them. They, who knows what they were thinking? Gosh, we have got to, as uh, Pastor Josh said this week in our preaching cohort, uh, assign the... Uh, let me find it here. Uh, what did he say? Yeah, the judgment of charity. We need to exercise the judgment of charity in our relationships, right? We can assume the best about what are people thinking and intentionality. Uh, we need to make an intentional effort. It's so easy to read into other people's actions, specifically here in West Michigan, where we're very passive aggressive. We don't want to have conflict. We don't want to talk to people. So we're just going to assume what they were thinking and then get really mad at them and then, you know, over something that may not even really be an issue. So... Those three things, right? Silence your inner critic, uh, develop a sanctified self-awareness, and I should add also new security that we have in Jesus, uh, and then refrain from questioning other people's motives. Uh, there's a beautiful blueprint here for gospel culture, a culture without condemnation, without judgment, without slander, without gossip. Who doesn't want to be a part of this kind of community and to build it together? I'm like, sign me up. I want to be a part of this kind of community to, together here. Well, I opened this morning by sharing a, about a very critical and judgmental version of myself, seminary Mike, we'll call him for the moment. I'm going to close uh, with just one way I'm slowly being uh, sanctified in my speech here. Uh, not to be too self-referential here, I feel I'm squirming about that, but, but I feel like I could balance it out here by maybe a ways God's working in my life. Paul says in Romans 12.10, uh, outdo one another in showing honor, and that's it's a verse that has been resonating in my heart, I think, trying to take this verse into my marriage, into my parenting, into my pastoring, uh, has been actually harder than, than you think. It's, some people are very natural at just showing honor, appreciation, thanksgiving, but if you're a more critical, judgmental person, right, that's a work of God as you begin to just actually pour out affirmation and honor to those uh, around you. And so that's something that God's been doing in my life. And um, obviously, I love the opportunity to do that with so many of you who've served. And I was thinking, but who do I honor here in the church today? I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble if I honor one person, but not everybody else. And so what really hit me as I was sitting and preparing this week was the opportunity I had to stand up at my dad's funeral a couple weeks ago and honor him. Um, the three, my, myself.